Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field, along with contest winners and a few surprise guests. Today we are speaking with a winner going all the way back to 1993. Welcome, Stoney Compton. Thank you. I'm very, very happy to be here. Yeah, I was watching a... Uh, I was I was reading or seeing checking a past winner and they talked about all your books. I said, Stoney, I haven't talked to him forever, and so I wrote to you, and then here we are. So that's great. So, uh, what's been happening? Uh, well, all kinds of things. I've I've been close to pumping out a book a year now for the last four years, um, and two of the books, uh, alternative history books, uh, were published through Ring of Fire Press. Uh, of course, that's Eric Flint, and he and I, he and I were, were in the same year together at Writers of the Future. In fact, he beat me out for first place in the fourth quarter. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I'm quite happy with that. Uh, he also helped me get my foot in the door with Bain with my first novel, uh, which is also an alternative history. Um, I write uh, historical fiction and science fiction and alternative history. And I've been working uh, quite hard for, well, a number of years Yeah. Uh, on a what I call the Gastineau Channel Quartet. And it's about uh, southeast Alaska, 1915 to 1945. It's four separate books, and they're all really long. But anyway, I don't want to get off on that <laughs> yet. Yeah, we'll get there, but not quite yet. <laughs> so, um, but the, recently, uh, quite recently, what, 10 days ago, <clears throat> Uh, Walt Boys, who is uh, Eric's editor-in-chief for Ring of Fire, uh, called me up and said, we were, we're, we're getting Cecilia Holland to publish. Uh, Ring of Fire Press is going to publish her. And since we're doing historical fiction, we want to republish your uh, historical fiction books also. And while we're at it, we're going to pick up, if you want, everything else you've written. So, wow. I said, yeah, because most of my stuff has been self-published. Uh, and what I've discovered about self-publishing is, well, I get along with the editor. Uh, I don't have any marketing people. I'm it. I'm yeah. all everything. Yeah. And you can't – that's a full-time job. Yeah, so, it is. So it's pre- that's pretty exciting for me. Uh, so now I don't have to even worry about marketing. I can just write and, and research. That's great. But, so now – how did your um, career or how did your love with uh, the muse of writing actually get started? Oh, boy. Uh, well, I, I've been a visual artist forever. Uh, I, I, I think I started drawing when I was eight. And uh, I got my college degree in, uh, well, actually, it's, I majored in American history, art, and uh, education, yeah. and I was yeah. going to be a teacher, and I did my student teaching and decided I can handle the children, I can handle the students, I can't handle the administration. And so I didn't do that. I, went to, I was a graphic artist for many, many years. I, I lived in Juneau. Uh, I lived in Alaska 31 years. I went, up, I went up for a summer and spent 31 winters, and uh, it, uh, I loved it. Yeah. Uh, it yeah. was all an adventure, but... I was working, I had my own studio in downtown Juneau, and 
I was doing freelance graphics on the side to support the studio and the family, and I had two contracts with the state of Alaska, which were quite lucrative, actually. Mm -hmm. And this was um, 1987, and Alaska has, their economy up there is different than down here in the lower 48. It's a whole different set of circumstances. And the price of oil dropped. I don't know if you remember that back yeah. in those days. And the state of Alaska runs on oil money. I thought you ran on gold dust. I thought you just went to the, <laughs> bought, you a, pulled out your gold dust, pulled out your packet and bought your loaf of bread with uh, how uh, much gold dust. Not too many people do that anymore. Okay. But, so I was working in my studio as I was doing paintings and I'm a printmaker and I had my own etching press and the whole nine yards. And um, I was working away on some prints and phone rang and it was one of my contacts at the state and he canceled the contract I had with his department and I no more than hung up than the other guy called and canceled the other one. So suddenly I had no income and so I had to move everything out of my, uh, I had to give up the studio mm -hmm. and move everything into uh, a little closet in our house that we lived in, my first wife and two kids and her sister and her daughter and I, um, there wasn't room for a studio. Right. There was a closet that I could set up as a writing office. So I went out and I bought an Amiga computer, and uh, I was playing with the idea of writing a book, and then I stumbled across the first volume of Writers of the Future, uh, volume one. And I, I read the whole thing. I thought it, was, it had a contest in it, so I spent the money. And... Um, I read that and I, <clears throat> I thought, well, some of these are really good and some of these I know I can write better. And uh, so I started writing uh, short stories. I'd get ideas and I'd write them. And my first one I sent, I got a, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Honorable mention? There you go. Honorable mention. <clears throat> and Al just Budry's good old AJ, sent, wrote on the, on the top of it, he said, this is great as far as it goes, but... Where you're at, where you ended is where the story really starts. And I thought about it, and he was right, and that turned into a novel later. Um, and I had another uh, another honorable mention. I forget which story it was. But it took me, well, from when I saw Volume 1, which is probably they were working on Volume 2 at the time, uh, I didn't get in until 9. Right. So it took, took longer than I thought it would, but I learned a whole lot in that period. And I also... Uh, and, during that time, sold a, a novelette, or not novelette, yeah, novelette, to uh, Bob Silverberg for his uh, Universe One anthology, which was a real, boy, I thought I, thought I had it made. Um, <laughs> he liked my story, and he, he saw, and then, then he sent the manuscript back. This was, you know, before computers, um, or before they were used that way. And uh, on the outside of the packet he'd, he'd written in big letters not to worry and what he'd done is he'd gone through my manuscript and edited it and he said okay be in the edits change you know and I need this change and this change uh, don't make it in too much longer because it's already pretty long and we have a sale and he says get it back to me at least within a month he had it back in three days <laughs> uh, and I was a published author uh, which that's a very nice feeling. I'm sure. I'm sure.
Yeah, and Bob was uh, one of our founding judges for the Writers of the Future contest. No, I, I don't know if he was in 93 or not. Yeah, he um, was from the very beginning. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's one of our founding wow. judges, yeah. Hmm. So he's been with I us all that. along. I think the, the, but they blind judged them, right? Yeah. So yeah. we have no idea so that it was you, yeah. Other than it was probably, other than the fact that it was also about Alaska. But <laughs> <I don't. laughs> so, um... That's a, that's a great story. So then, uh, when you came out then for the, where was the Writers of the Future uh, workshop held that year? They would. Uh, there at the headquarters, I guess. Okay, they? good. Here at Author Services? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so what was it like that, that week? Uh, well, of course, the, the coolest part about it was the fact that they paid for my way from Alaska down to Hollywood mm -hmm. and put me up for a week and shipped me back. I mean... That was a first since the, well, since the Navy, and it was a whole different stick then. Yeah. Uh, but the, um, I went down there thinking, boy, this is going to be a week-long party. And, and they, had us, they had us booked from morning till night, uh, one thing after another. It was, uh, it was pretty rigorous, as I remember, yeah. but enjoyable. Yeah. And uh, in fact, I, had to, I got to one point where I realized that I was running out of time and because uh, I, I couldn't really afford to stay down there on my own, uh, and not having a job. But uh, I went. Uh, I took one afternoon. I skipped one afternoon and went out and bought some trinkets and stuff to take back to the family. Uh, but that was the only time I had off from the whole thing. And uh, it was uh, it was intensive, but it was very illuminating. Yeah. Uh, it was it was really neat to sit down and talk to people you seeing their names on books and stuff, and here you are, they're chatting with you about how to do it. Um, that was pretty spectacular, especially, you know, from the boonies where I was. Yeah, I see a picture in this, um, in our 25-year book, you know, here. Yeah. There's a picture of you there in the album there with... Um, Fred Pohl. Yeah, Fred Pohl, right? Yeah. And there was uh, Jack Williamson was there. Uh, yeah. Sean, Sean Williams also won that year. Yeah, he did. Uh, we we had a we had a blast. Uh, the night of the uh, awards ceremony, afterward, we managed to uh, purloin most of the beer that was left. We went out and had a hot tub out there and partied until they came out and told us we had to shut up and go to bed. <laughs> but it was it was it was really neat. Uh, Sean and uh, Eric, of course, only made it for the last. I think the last two days, because he couldn't get off from work. Right. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, and Deb Hudak and uh, uh, Elizabeth Ween. Yeah. It was, it was cool we, to meet, these, meet all these folks then and watch them blossom since. Uh, it's really cool. And I'm still in touch with most of them. And uh, it's, yeah. Went, actually went to see Charlie Saplack. Was gosh, it's been 20 years ago now, though, in Virginia when my son and I did a road trip. Yeah. But yeah, it's uh, a lot of them. I a lot of the folks I don't see their name out there, which doesn't mean they're not writing. Right. Uh, right. A lot of people don't see my name out there either. And you're and still I writing. Stopped writing. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's good. So. Are you familiar with any of the Owen Hubbard books or essays? Uh, I actually, uh, I've done a lot of 
research um, on my historical fiction, um, especially the part, uh, I've got the first two books of the quartet written, and the next two are from in the 30s and then World War II when Alaska was a, a war zone. And in researching, I came across Hubbard's name in relationship to uh, him being in, in uh, Ketchikan. Yeah. which is just yeah. south of Juneau where most of the stuff takes place, although I do have scenes in Ketchikan and the other books. But um, I started started looking up all this stuff, and I found that the thing, uh, an article about him that had been written, I believe, by the Sitka Sentinel, I'm not sure who, and uh, that he had been on a, been a radio disc jockey and all that and uh, was really into researching white noise. Yeah. And that he had... Uh, in fact, uncovered a Nazi spy, and I can't find any more information on this. Driving me, I said, "Do you have more information on that? I'd love to hear." It. I will definitely I'll send it to you. There's a uh, the guy who is the uh, manager of KTKN Radio, who was right. where where uh, Ron Hubbard had a, a regular show on there while he was there in Ketchikan. And by the way, just uh, a bit of digression. That's where he created his first uh, writing contest, writing competition, the Golden Pen Award in Ketchikan. To the uh, to the people there, so that's where he got the idea of that, which later then became um, the the awards of the Golden Pen Award and the Golden Brush Award for the Writers of the Future contest. But it originally started there in Ketchikan, Alaska. But he was there; he was flying the flag with the Explorers Club on that trip to Ketchikan. But he was right. also doing some research for the U.S. Navy on uh, what was uh, Loran long range navigation. And, when mm -hmm. he, and that equipment would have helped him find there was this uh, signal that was blocking, found out it was a, a German saboteur, so he found them. But there's a whole thing in there from the manager of KTKN talking about that. So I'll send you that letter. I'd appreciate that yeah. very much. Yeah, it was, it was pretty interesting. I've been to Ketchikan a few times, and I love it. It's absolutely beautiful. I learned after the first hour or so, you don't use umbrellas. <laughs> I went walking. No. I had my umbrella, and I was walking, and I said... It's raining and nobody has it. I'm the only umbrella. So I quickly folded it up and just got wet and went into the nearest place and bought myself a little cap, a hat, and then wore the hat and just never pulled out the umbrella again. Yeah, it's, uh, all of Southeast is, well, it's rainforest. And I lived in Juneau for 16 years. And, uh, well, supposedly here in Oregon it rains, but no. not compared to that. No. <laughs> <laughs> now, in fact, uh, Ketchikan... Uh, if you go out, uh, get on a float plane and go out there 15 minutes, uh, you hit Annet Island, and that's where I did my student teaching. Wow. It was out during the, back in the state-operated school system days. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was, that was interesting, too, because uh, I was working with uh, Simsian kids. at, at Annet Island is a Simsian Indian Reserve, and... There was the Simsian kids, and then there was the Coast Guard kids, because that's where the big Coast Guard base was sure. then. Sure, yeah. yeah. But, uh, so I had, it was a very interesting time. Uh, the, it was at a point where the uh, Simsians had figured out that they had sold their traditional heritage for white middle-class values, and a lot of them weren't happy about it. So it was a, it was a very dynamic time to be there. Mm-hmm. But... Still in contact with some of those folks too, but um, he actually wrote a, a book. He published it uh, after the war, on uh, when he was there in Ketchikan. It was uh, 
because he did he was doing a bunch of research also like on the Tlingit Indians and uh, we found some interesting research that because he he traveled all over the world and he actually found that uh, no matter where you were everybody had uh, their own version of the Great Flood in their in their ancient history so we found out there was that there too um, but it was uh, he wrote a book called the Chee Chalker and uh, it was about Ketchikan. So uh, Chichaco, Chichaco is a term for a new a newcomer, newbie. the newbie, the newcomer. Yeah. yeah. So that's what this is about. So it's a, it's a good story. I'll send that to you as well. So you can get something about Alaska. That was his story about Alaska. I, I love, that's the, actually that's the thing I like most about writing, writing historical fiction, or even alternative history, because you want to get it right. You want to make, make it feel right. And uh, research is the answer. Um, with Treadwell, my first one in the uh, Gastineau Channel Quartet, uh, I researched for eight months at the Alaska State Museum, uh, Library and Museum in Juneau, before I even started writing. And then it took me 10 years to write the book. Yeah. Uh, and 10 years of blogging it and people reading it and saying, it's too long. You're a new, no one knows your name. We can't publish a book this long. And I finally gave up and self-published it. <laughs> into it yeah well that's good so um so your life obviously after uh, after winning the contest um you've written what a dozen novels i'm coming up on a dozen yeah but uh yeah and it's i keep starting series and not finishing them uh which i have to i have to stop doing that um right now right now i'm working on well I was working on the third book in the Gastineau Channel Quartet, which, uh, anyway, and I would, what I do is I, through interlibrary loan, I get microfilm uh, copies of all the newspapers for that time. It's the daily newspaper, well, except Sundays. They didn't publish Sundays back then. Mm -hmm. And I take them to the library. I go to the library, and I scan them, page, every page. Yeah. And uh, put it and turn it into a, a JPEG or a PDF and bring it home. And that way I can sit there and peruse it at my leisure. And I was in the process of uh, scanning uh, papers from uh, 1932 to 1936 when, oh, I'm at 1934 now when the pandemic hit and everything closed up. So uh, I'm stuck because <laughs> I really, I've learned that I really need to know everything that happened before I get in there and start building stories and uh, building the, the novel. Well, that's and what builds so, so much realism in, in a story. It's like it makes it, you're willing, yeah. okay, this is believable, this is believable, this is believable. Okay, now where does the fiction come in? Because everything else is, is grounded in, in believability. Exactly. And I also, another uh, thing I like about it is I actually use images of the front pages and some of the, a lot of the ads as spacers between the chapters, uh, which that way if they just scan the newspaper front page, they know what's going on in the world that I'm, I'm trying to create. So it, it's, it beats doing a big information dump. Yeah. And they still, it's, it gives it more verisimilitude, I think. And it, uh, well, the two that I've got out, uh, the people who have read them like them. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, nine of them. Um, yeah. So are you so able, to, are you making a living as, a, as an author? Are you able to generate enough income that you're, that you're living off of your income? 
No. Uh, I wish. No, uh, if it wasn't for Social Security, I'd be up, I'd be pushing around a grocery cart out in the street. But uh, it's. Uh, I thought I could cut. Uh, I was working for the uh, Navy down in Corpus Christi, Texas, from what 20, 2012 to twenty fifteen, and I discovered that I really didn't like uh, South Texas weather. It's it's hot humid, and they got lots of bugs, uh, even mosquitoes. I thought, you know, I thought mos- uh, Alaska had the, you know, mosquitoes, but they have uh, got a bunch down in Texas, too. Yeah. So yeah. I, I finally resigned. I just I said, okay, I, I'm going to quit. I'm going to go up back to the Pacific Northwest and uh, find work there. Well, ageism's out there, and if you're over, if you're over 50, it's hard to get a job, but if you're over 60... Forget it. Yeah. So I finally gave up on looking for work and just started really writing hard. And I'm hoping this uh, new situation with Ring of Fire Press will turn into something a little more lucrative than my Poodle Pup Publishing has been. So we'll yeah, and hopefully this will help because we have a fairly decent uh, listenership to this podcast. So hopefully other people will discover Stone and Compton when they read your stuff and they'll talk about it and just, you know, just... Word of yeah. mouth has a lot to do with uh, success. This is true. This is true. I, yeah. I go to. I used to go to a lot of cons in Texas. I uh, uh, went to one in Dallas, and I went to one in Houston, and also one in Austin. And uh, tried to do that each year, and I'd drive to them, which Texas is an awfully large state. I thought Alaska was big, but there's not that much road in Alaska. But, boy, in Texas, it just can go forever. Yeah. But uh, I don't go down there anymore, but I do go to Oricon. But now, you know, with the COVID thing, there aren't any cons. So it's, it's kind of hard to get your name out there or talk to people about it, uh, the people that don't know you already. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do have a, a, I have a nice little cadre of folks that keep saying, when are you going to get this out? When are you going to get this out? Which is really nice. I love that. Yeah. But I, I need more of them. Well, hopefully also with this Ring of Fire Press, it's going to take you to a whole new level. That is the, uh, the idea. Yeah. So on, um, so are you part of any writing group or any other group you would like to acknowledge? Uh, I used to be, when I lived in Juneau, we started the uh, Rainforest Writers, and we actually put on uh, uh, writers' conferences three years running, uh-huh. and then we, we did all the work, and... Uh, the first one was a one-day, and the second one was a two-day, and the third one was a three-day, and the third one we actually had enough money to bring in people from uh, the lower 48. I brought Chris Rush and Dean Wesley Smith up. and uh, They're also both judges of the contest. Right, yeah, and they're, they're friends. Yeah. Uh, I finally got to meet them. I, I met them back in, well, uh, became aware of them back in the Pulp House days uh, when they were putting out their magazine. And mm-hmm. they still have a whole row of those, but uh, yeah, it, it was a real beautiful conference, and we had people come to it from all over Alaska and the Yukon, and um, it was, I thought, all right, we're finally going to be real, and I started talking to people about next year, and they said, we've done it, we're done. So anyway, that was about it. Uh, I, I left Juno. Oh, my, my life changed a whole lot right then. I got divorced, and uh, I left Juneau and went, was in Anchorage working for the state of Alaska. And then finally, after 
31 years, I, my mom, my mom was diagnosed with uh, inoperable cancer, and I knew if I didn't go down and hang out with her, I'd, I'd regret it. So I quit my job and went to Colorado, and he passed away about four months after that. So I was glad I did it. Yeah. Even though, even though I couldn't find work there either, and it took me a year to get out of Colorado, <laughs> get back to the Pacific Northwest. But yeah, it's uh, my my writing life has had to fit in around my work life, and my work life has been totally chaotic. Uh, always has been. Uh, make a list of the things that I've done in my life, and it's I even find it a little, you know, are you crazy? But anyway, it's. But now you've got writing as a life. Yes, exactly. Writing and taking care of our cats and dogs and taking hikes and, yeah. Well, good. So on the, um, um, with the current publishing scene, like you said, you went self-publishing, now you're with the Ring of Fire Press. Do you have any, your own perspective of of the future, how things are going with, uh, because you've you've been doing your self-publishing up to this recent point, so... What's your take on publishing and making it as an author? Oh, boy. Um, well, I've, I listened to a number of your podcasts uh, while I was sitting here doing uh, graphics. For I, I also do my own book covers, or I did. I, that might have changed, too. But um, so I, anyway, I was listening to uh, Bob Silverberg, yeah. that was, and he kind of dissed uh, self-publishing. And I thought, well, you know, that maybe that was true back then, but it's not now. Uh, there's there's a, a, too many gatekeepers and not enough gates right now in publishing. You have to you have to have an agent. So okay, realistically, there goes a percentage of anything you'll ever make forever, mm-hmm. uh, and and then you get a cut from the publisher of what it is, and it's nowhere near. Uh, unless you're really, unless you do a bestseller or a blockbuster or something, you're not going to get rich. Uh, I remember when uh, Bain published my first novel uh, back in 2006. I was working in Seattle in, uh, for this environmental engineering company. And one of my coworkers, very sweet lady, said, Stoney, you're a published author now. Are you going to quit your job? <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. <laughs> but yeah, it's it, the thing is, self-publishing, it's, I know a lot of people who started and then they just gave up. And the thing about giving up is then you kind of always wonder if you could have done it. Mm-hmm. So I just, you just have to keep pushing it. Uh, perseverance is the hardest part of writing. Uh, even when you get frustrated and pissed off, you, you still, you can't, you can't let that stop you. You right. have to keep. And if uh, and I, it, it isn't like I just write something and throw it out there. Um, I write uh, the full manuscript out, and then I leave it alone. Uh, I try to leave it alone for two weeks. It's really hard to do, but I, I I really try. And then I go back and I reread. I read it out loud to myself from beginning to end. And reading it out loud to yourself you find errors that you didn't realize were there. Sure. Because you know what you were thinking when you wrote it, and you're just going too fast and skip that the uh, and the F and, you know, this sort of stuff. And you also find the spellings. And so then I go through and I straighten out 
plot holes that I left wide open or didn't close to start with, things like that. And I get it to where I think, okay, this, this I think is a viable work. Then I give it to my wife, Blett, uh, who is an excellent editor. And she goes through it with a fine-tooth comb. She, she gives it back, pages back to me, and there's red here and red there. And, and she's, that's, she's just doing line edits. She's just finding sentences that don't make sense, things like that. And uh, just she's wonderful. And then I have uh, some beta readers that I send it to once she's done with it, and I key in the, the changes, corrections. Mm-hmm. Um, I send it off to the beta readers and tell them, okay, I got, you got a month to get back to me on this or I'm going to run without you. And some of them make it back, some of them don't. Uh, some of them I'm not sure ever read it, but that's, you know, to them. Yeah. They're not getting paid. <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, so th- at that point, once I get it back from the beta readers and through their concerns or, or ignore them, that's the nice, you know, that's the other nice thing about it is beta readers are wonderful, but they are, I also tell them, uh, I'm, I'm open to any suggestion, but that doesn't mean I'm going to use it. And right. I understand that. Right. Uh, often I do. Often they make very good points, and I go, oh, yeah. Uh, but um, at that point, that's when I put it into manuscript format, which is a whole lot of work right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to do one for uh, ebook, and then you have to do a different one for because uh, I have images in my stuff. So for print-on-demand, all the all the images have to be 300 DPI, or they look like garbage on the page. Mm-hmm. I do two final ones for each each novel, for each manuscript, and it's a lot of work. But I I'm kind of I'm, I'm not kind of I'm very pleased with uh, how they came out. I, I think I put out a good product, both in terms of story and the way the product looks, the, the book looks. Yeah. Like I said, I, did, I do all my uh, covers myself. I do, I do sometimes come across an image that just grabs me, like uh, my, one, my one standalone novel, Whale Song, which was uh, the uh, short version of that was the one that A.J. said, no, this is where the story starts, and he was right. Uh, and so I... I'd come across this fractal painting online, and I remember thinking that would be a great cover for Whale Song if I could never get it published. And I was going to suggest to whoever bought it that they use that. Well, it ended up it was, I was the one that published it. So I found the image, wrote to the guy who did it, and asked him what would it cost me to use his image. And he said, it was really neat. He wrote back and says, first, thank you for asking. Most people don't. And he said, secondly, uh, go ahead and use it. I'm, I'm glad you like it that well. So I gave him a, a blurb on the inside cover and everything as who did it. Johnson is the last name. I remember that. But it's been a few years. And uh, I still like it. I still think it's a great cover. And that, that's the other thing with uh, going with Ring of Fire Press. Eric wants to change the covers on uh, my first two historical novels because he wants to they're, they're great covers. They're just too historic-y. Uh, I want to make them jazzier. So it's going to be interesting to see what they come up with. And I don't know if he's going to change all the rest of my covers or not. But whatever. He's a publisher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did that happen that he just, because you've been friends since you were 
both winners and Riders of the Future um, back in uh, 93. So how did it transition? How did it come up that he said, let me publish your books? How did that happen? Uh, he, we stayed in contact uh, by email after 93. And uh, his, his son went to the University of Alaska Fairbanks. So he, he, he knows Alaska a little bit. And, you know, the, the, the tougher parts to know, like Fairbanks. Yeah. Uh, I, I lived there eight years and still don't know why. But um, <laughs> they have horrible winters. But uh, he, uh, we, we stayed in contact. And then I, I was actually talking about the, uh, my first novel, um, Russian America, when I first met him. And he told me, he said, whenever, whenever, when you finish Russian America, let me see it first. So I finished the first draft and got all the real big bugs out of it and splinters and stuff and sent it off to him. And uh, he took him forever to read it because he was, well, he's constantly writing five books at once. Yeah. He is so prolific, it just amazes me. But... Um, he finally read it and he wrote back and he said, "Okay, here's what I think." And he went through and I had I had him. It's a alternative history about an Alaska that never that the Russians still owned and the uh, Athabascans are have had it with them and they're revolting and there's the lower 48 is balkanized. It's 11 different countries and things like that. And uh, he I had jets in and he says, "No, not jets. Give them. It's supposed to be in 1987, I think it was." He said, uh, have their technology be about 1945, just before jets, uh, and things like that, uh, little ideas like that. So I rewrote it and sent it back to him, and he was working with Jim Bain at the time. Yeah. He showed the manuscript to Jim, and he sent me, <laughs> he copied me on the email that Jim sent him about it. Jim said something to the effect of, okay, he says, uh, this Compton guy really likes these Indians because they seem to be able to do no wrong. You need, he says, I will buy this if you will sign on as editor of it and take a really big stick and hit it a lot. And so I said, okay, I can, I can agree with that. And uh, so I made, I did, I made some changes to suit Jim. And before it was published, Jim Bain died. And I thought, Oh, this is great! My first chance to getting published, and <laughs> my publisher dies, and so I called Eric, and Eric says, "Don't worry," he says Tony's going to pick it up right where Jim left off, and she did, and uh, she also bought the sequel to it, and that's what I'm working on now. Is the third book in that, and the sequel came out in what 20? Mm -hmm. So it's been a while. It's, uh, so it's a long time to wait for the third book in the series. Yeah, but, Tony uh, was almost going to be our our keynote speaker this past year at a Writers of the Future event. And then uh, COVID hit, and um, that was that. But she was all set to come out and speak. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. It's this. This thing is changing everything about our way of life. Mm -hmm. uh, at least the social part of it. Yeah. Which was the most important part. I, I thought. Well, unfortunately, politics got into it, and I, that's really messed up the whole thing. Yeah. But we won't go there. Exactly. I say totally clear from that. I got friends on both sides of the of the party line, and so I'm all about books and getting published and recognizing amazing new talents, and uh, I just stay on track with that. Yeah. 
So um, any other particular tips you would suggest for aspiring writers as they get started or to take their next step? Because you made comment about um, the worst thing is that they just don't finish, they don't persevere. So what would you give as a, as a tip or suggestion to overcome that, that inertia factor as a writer? Um, well, first, I, I meet, I'll meet people and I'll be wearing, I, I usually wear shirts that are, I, I'm constantly advertising or trying to, and I, I have a whole bunch of shirts with my uh, Google Pub, Publishing logo on it and stuff, and uh, I'll talk to people, every chance I get, uh, if I'm chatting with somebody in a store or something, I'll just say, do you read for pleasure? Yeah. And they either say yes or no. And uh, if they say yes, then I ask what do they like to read. And if they say science fiction or history or anything like that, then I give them my card and say, check me out, you know. And I, I make them the, uh, I give them the guarantee that if they don't like my novel, I'll reimburse them. Uh, okay. I don't, know, I don't know anybody else that does that. But uh, I've never reimbursed anybody yet. So uh, either I'm not You're safe. Or, You're safe with that then. <laughs> You keep on moving. So from, you move from from state to state to state. <laughs> <laughs> they have to find me first. Exactly. But, uh, but I, a lot of them, a lot of folks I meet like that will say, you know, I've always wanted to write a book, but I don't know how to start. And I say it's real easy. You sit down and you write the first line, and then you write the second line, and then the third one. And the longer you write, the more you write, the more of the story will come into your head about it when you're doing it by yourself like that is you can get a whole bunch of lines and if you don't like any of them, take them out. Yeah. Uh, it's, a lot of people defeat themselves before they start. So, but the blunts that get past that, mm -hmm. they do get to the where they're writing. And they're, uh, it's a, a fallacy, I think, that people need to start with short stories and then graduate into novels. Uh, I frankly find it really tough to write a good short story. I'm too windy. I just, I have all this background and exposition and color and stuff that I find difficult to put into shorthand. I, now I have written some good short stories. I mean, the one that uh, they published, that I got published in volume nine, uh, that's one of my favorites. Yeah. That was, uh, that was a miracle story because I, it came to me in a flash in the middle of a, you know, of interviewing a guy. I'd been hired by the state of Alaska uh, part-time and I was splitting a job with another, with a woman and uh, we were working for the uh, API 2000 project. This was back in the uh, late 80s. And API stands for Alaska Psychiatric Institute. It's the only state-operated mental hospital in the state. And uh, it's in Anchorage, and our office was in Juneau. So our boss sent us down to Anchorage for a tour of the facility. And this fellow is walking around, showing us the thing and talking and stuff. And we went back into this one ward where there aren't any, it's kind of hard for them to just, the, the clients, as they call them, to walk out the door. And there was this wall that was, half glass with the, the little wires running through it so they couldn't get out even they broke the glass. And there was this old Eskimo man standing there and as we were out there chatting and there was nothing else to look at except us and he was watching us. And I glanced over at him and he tapped on the window 
the point of the dork. You want it out. And I just, I kind of shrugged. And then I thought, my God, it must be horrible for him to be in there after living, you know, in, on the land, in his village, wherever he was from. And all of a sudden, this story just slammed me right in the head. And I started writing notes down, and the guy, <laughs> the guy who was giving us the tour must have thought I was taking notes about it because he started grinning and he started talking faster. I just kept writing. <laughs> <laughs> got back to my hotel room and wrote out the, the bones of the story. And when I got back to Juno, I wrote the whole thing, I think, in two days. And uh, it, it really worked. Uh, I loved it. But uh, that doesn't happen often. Right. A good short story is, is uh, a precious jewel. And I'm not that good of a jeweler. It takes me time. I need to... <laughs> I need lots of pages, and uh, but so a lot of the new writers think that they have to come up with a whole bunch of winning short stories before they can attempt a novel. That's not true. Right. Um, just uh, start writing that novel. Uh, you know, you can. The, the lovely thing about writing that a lot of them, a lot of new writers seem to think that when they write it down, it's set in stone. It can't be changed. It shouldn't be changed because it's their idea. It's their work. No. Uh, it's not perfect. That's, that, that should be something that should be across everybody, the top of everybody's computer screen. It's not perfect the first five times. Uh, I know there's some people who, uh, Dean, Dean Wesley Smith, he never rewrites. Right. He writes it out there. But he's also been writing for ever. Yeah, he was, he was the first person to cross the stage in uh, volume one. He was the first person to ever be presented as a winner for Writers of the Future. Yeah. Yeah, well, and deservedly so. Dean's um, a good writer. I started writing, in, well, I sold my first story in 1988. I'm still rewriting everything because uh, I write too fast. I, I get in a hurry and I'm zipping along, and I, I want to ride that wave as far as I can. Yeah. And I can always go back and, you know, pick up the pieces as, if I sure. need to. It's different for everybody. Uh, it, it, there's no set formula. There's no way you hold your nose or your face when you're writing is just be you. A lot of people worry about their writing voice. It's you. Uh, it's them. It's uh, however they come across uh, on the page, that's what the reader hears. And as long as they're not trying to emulate or uh, copy somebody else, it's going to be real. It, it, it's going to be viable. Uh, they, if they want to be the next, you know, any, any famous author, um, they can try to emulate them, but it's going to show. Mm -hmm. And, you know, fan fiction is one thing. Using you know, somebody else's characters, that's fine. Because they, they inject their own um, take on it into the story. That's cool. But to try and uh, totally emulate somebody else is just a waste of time. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because we've got recently the uh, um, Owen Hubbard Online Writers Workshop, Writers of the Future Online Writing Workshop, that uh, features Orson Scott Card, Tim Powers, and uh, Dave Farland. And okay. a lot of what you just said there, Orson Scott Card talks about in voice, you know, talking about, you know, you do it all the time, you speak all the time, just kind of like, you know, you know what to say, you just don't think that something else, what you say is right. And it's, it's a great online workshop. We've got several thousand people that have uh, 
enrolled on it since we launched it in April. But it's these, these three uh, judges that are speaking to you as one-on-one -on -one, like we're talking to each other right now. And mm -hmm. what you're saying there is, is basically what Scott Card says. Yep, well, he's right. Uh, it's, uh, and you say hi to Dave for me. I saw him last year, two years ago, at uh, the master class that Dean and Chris put on. Uh -huh. uh, and in Las Vegas? Yeah. Yeah. And re reconnect with it. Yeah, the nice thing about Las Vegas is between uh, getting laid off my job in Seattle and working for the Navy, I worked for the Air Force in uh, Nellis there in Las Vegas for uh, two and a half years. And we have a, a number of friends there who happily put me up, which helped my helped the bottom line on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, on that trip. It was still really neat seeing all those folks again. Uh, it's there's a that's the other thing that uh, new writers need to think about. Uh, if they if they want to really get a feel for it, go to cons, uh, go where they can meet uh, people who are writing and are pub being published or self-publishing even. Uh, and you find out that they're just as human as you are. A lot of, a lot of new uh, writers, it's, it's almost like it's uh, a published writer is a deity of a sort or something or a minor deity. That's not true. We're just, we're just bummed. Uh, but it's... Uh, <laughs> You know, with, with a gift of gab, mm -hmm. and uh, it's not that big a deal. And but and, and I think that there's a lot of mystique about being a writer, and that uh, it's kind of worthless. Well, there's the fact too of, you know, as much as you want to, you know, say it's uh, it's nothing. The fact is, a lot of people never get past the point of I wish I could do that. You know, and it's a legitimate thing. The fact that you did it does, maybe it doesn't deify you, but it does make you a standout because you've done something that they've, maybe they've even gotten to the point of aspiring. They just thought, wow, that's amazing how somebody could do that. You know, you can trans transfer your thoughts into words and make uh -huh. it something somebody else will want to read and tell other people about. It is a skill. It's not something that's just like, I got the gift of gab. I can assure you, I know a lot of people with an amazing gift of gab. And they'd be hard-pressed to come out with any type of a book that anybody would be interested in. So there is something about it, the fact that you're able to do that. And you're moving up now that, you know, you're being published by Ring of Fire Press. Which brings me to the, to the question is, if someone wants to be able to explore you as an author, what do you recommend as a first read? Well, okay. Luckily, I only have two children, and one's, one's male and one's female, so I love them both equally because they're both very different. But um, being an author, you love all your books when you're writing them, but if, when they're done, you know, there's some that you love and there's some that are, well, I'm glad I did that. Um, the one I flat out love is Whale Song. It's been around the longest. Uh, I started it, uh, that was the short story that I got the first honorable mention for. And uh, I, I worked on that thing off and on while writing other stuff uh, for years. And I, I finally got it finished, and it's, it's a standalone. It there's, sets up a sequel that may or may not happen. I don't mm -hmm. know. I've been actually thinking about that one, too. But um, it, it works by itself. 
uh, after the apocalypse thing, it's, uh, but the apocalypse is an asteroid strike. And uh, I don't want to give any, a whole lot of it away, but the asteroid wasn't by itself. And it makes a big difference on Earth. And my main character, my protagonist, uh, is a, uh, an Eskimo from Point Hope, Alaska. And you follow him through know, a lot of change, a great deal of change. The one thing he can do, because he, his mother fed him the uh, liver of a fresh slaughtered seal, which is a delicacy, or was a delicacy back in the day, because they've reverted to the old ways, because nothing of the modern age works anymore. And um, but the, the seal glowed in the dark, and his father wouldn't touch it. He caught, he caught, he caught it, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't touch it. It freaked him out. And his mother, you know, hey, it's food. And so she feeds it in this, the liver, and suddenly it's like this thing swirls into his head, and he can feel his mother's feelings, uh, his father's feelings, and he actually, it startles him so much that he hits her arm, and she's using her ulu, her woman's knife, to slaughter the seal, and she cuts her hand, and he feels her panic because being cut, they don't, there's no doctors around. And she runs into the house to get help from her husband, and he can feel everything that's going on. And as time goes on, his senses get more and more acute, and he gets to the point where by the time he's 17, he is a shaman, and he calls, he can call the uh, animals to the hunters and fish to the fishermen and stuff like that, and, which is a real big deal because they live off the land. And, but he's also socially ostracized, and so he has uh, being young and becoming an adult, he has all of these emotions that he can't translate and he feels people laughing at him. And it's, uh, he goes from being a very negative character into something quite different uh, through the length of the book. And uh, it's really, it's my favorite science fiction book. Wow. Okay, so uh, it's called Whale Song. Yeah. And you get it where from Amazon or from where? Where does somebody get it? You can, uh, you can get uh, print on demand through Amazon or the ebook or, or through my website, tonycompton.com. Uh, um, but uh, yeah, the <laughs> my favorite uh, reviews. You get not enough reviews. On, that's the other thing, everybody out there. Write reviews about what you read. It really helps. Even if you don't like the book, say so. We figure, you know, that makes the next book better. Um, a lot of people just don't write them. But uh, one review that uh, I don't, I wish I'd, I'd like to meet the guy. I want to shake his hand, buy him a beer. But uh, he said, uh, there's nothing else out there like this. He says, I read in his, in his review, it's, it's on Amazon. It's in, I, I read a lot of books. It's like a number of books a month. And he says, this is unique. And he says, this is so satisfying. And that made me feel real good. That's great. Good. So then um, so that would be, be a good uh, Stony Compton primer then to, get, to read that one there. And then you can go on from there. Yeah, of course. You might be disappointed with the rest of them after that, but <laughs> we'll see. Let's hope not. Let's hope not. So how can people find you? You said StonyCompton.com? Yeah. It's S-T-O-N-E-Y-C-O-M-T-O-N. C-O-M-P-T-O-N, yeah. Yeah. Right, dot com. And that's, that's my website. 
I built it. It's it works. But, yeah, it's it's not fancy. Uh, so I just need to find you and see what to see what you read and find out about you. So it definitely does that. Yeah, and I, I do have other science fiction. Uh, I call the Kiana series. And what's funny is Kiana. I didn't realize until after I'd written the first book that that's a that's a small village in Alaska, but uh, it's a planet in my book, and it's uh, about uh, it's it's space space opera. Mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed that, and I have there's Yana uh, and then there, uh, well level six yeah because it starts out with a crew of exo uh, archaeologists who are doing a dig and they come across this incredible find that changes everything they know about the, the native Keans who are very human-like but different and uh, very very docile and they find out that they're really not all that docile uh, and here's how the, here's the proof but and then of course I bring in a comet that's going to kill everybody if they don't do something so I yeah I keep it moving and uh, I did a re- uh, novel, Return to Kiana, uh, which continues the story. And I've got the third book outlined. It's just it's waiting in the queue. Right. I've got about five books in the queue uh, that I do think about. And when I get a new idea for one, I'll write it down so I don't forget it, And uh, which I'm getting enough ideas lately on those. But I'm always writing something. Yeah. The nice thing about having two or three books underway is if I get – Get to a place where, gee, what happens next? I just go to a different book and work on that for a while, and it's still cooking back there in the back of my head. And then I go, click. Here's what you do, and then you go back to that one again. It's, so, it's I don't write fast enough to suit some folks, and maybe too fast to suit others. But um, it's it's what I do, and I love it. Well, that's good. Just in terms of aspiring writers, would you recommend Writers of the Future for someone who's um, oh, all the time? I do all the time. Um, I spoke to, uh, when I was still living in Alaska, uh, I left in 98, um, but when I was still up there, I was, uh, some of the local teachers would have me come in, English teachers would have me come in and talk to their classes in high school, mm-hmm. high school, junior high, and uh, that's the first thing I'd tell them is write the best story you can. If you're into science fiction or fantasy or horror, I guess, I don't know, um, Get the best story you can. The first place you send it is Writers of the Future contest because they pay you money. They pay you money if they buy it, and they also give you a free trip outside, which when you live in Alaska, a free trip outside is nothing to sneeze at. And then they'll ask me questions about it, and they'll say, well, when is it? And I, I will give them the address. I always have the address with me when I go to talk to young people especially. But uh, uh, and I've been on panels at, uh, especially at Oricon and uh, NorwestCon, mm-hmm. where with other writers of the future, uh, graduates, if you will, yeah. uh, and that's you know we all say the same thing: send it in. It doesn't cost a cent, and you'd be amazed what could happen. Yeah, and it, it has it has to happen to somebody, you know. Exactly. Okay, great. So, anything else I failed to ask you that you wanted to talk about? I just, uh, I, someone asked me uh, not that long ago, a friend of mine online asked me uh, how, how I could find time to write so much. And I told him that it was, 
the problem wasn't finding time to write, it was finding time to do other things other than write. Because it's just, it's totally uh, absorbing. Uh, if I'm not writing on the manuscript, I'm researching it or I'm plotting. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's, when I go to bed at night, the way I go to sleep is I'm, I lay there and I think about the plot that I'm working on and what happens next. And there have been times I've gotten up and <laughs> sat down in the living room and wrote for another half hour just because I don't want that to go away. And that's yeah. the other thing. You get an idea and you're going to sleep, push yourself, have that pad and pen by the side of your bed, write down the idea. If you don't do that, it's gone. Yeah. At my age. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Tony. It's been really a, a, a true pleasure speaking with you. Uh, it's, it's been an honor, and, uh, and, and I really appreciate this opportunity, and good, good luck with this. This is great. I, I, really, I really like listening to your podcast. Great. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Writers of the Future podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeart, and Spotify. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Great. Thank you very much, Tony, and um, keep on writing those books. You betcha. Okay, great. <laughs> okay. All right, bye -bye. See you later. Okay, bye-bye.